listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Throughout the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is committed to get to the heart of his followers, which is going to lead his disciples to live counterculturally from those around him, to live radically different from not only the irreligious in their culture, but from the religious as well. And Jesus says that we cannot do this from an identity that we can achieve on our own, but only from an identity we've already received in Christ Jesus. We see this through the likes of the Beatitudes and loving our enemies. Jonathan Pennington says that Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount is that God is Father and cares about our heart, not just our external religious deeds and religion. And Jesus, he continues this theme of God caring about our hearts as he teaches on prayer. And last week in verses 5 to 8, Jesus warns that when we pray, we shouldn't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, those who pray for show and recognition. Nor should we be like the Gentiles, the pagans, those that heap up empty phrases, thinking that their gods will hear them because of their many words. Instead, Jesus says, pray to your heavenly Father who already knows what you need. And like any good teacher, Jesus doesn't just show us what not to do. He shows us what to do, which brings us to what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, or as some of you may call it, the Disciples' Prayer in verses 9 to 13 that we just read. And now this prayer, though we all have probably repeated it verbatim at points throughout our life, which isn't a bad thing, but Jesus wants us to look at this prayer as a model to follow. This is a model for prayer, not a mantra. And so he wants us to follow the pattern that he lays out here in these verses. And this model for prayer is structured in a way like the Ten Commandments and the first and second greatest commandments, as in it it starts with God, it begins with God, and then it moves to man. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see how these petitions in this prayer are broken into these two parts, the divine and the human. But this week, we're 
we're going to settle into verse 9, where Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, if you take anything away from today, I want it to be this, church. I want it to be that we can pray our Father in heaven because Jesus perfectly praised our Father in heaven. We can pray our Father in heaven because Jesus perfectly praised our Father in heaven. And we're going to see this through three points today. The intimacy of God, the power of God, and the praise of God. And I'd love as I'm preaching this morning for you guys to keep your Bibles open to make sure that that my words are Jesus' words. That what I'm saying is what God says Jesus, he transitions from how not to pray to pray then like this. And when he says pray then like this, it's in contrast to the norm of prayer in the culture. The way that the Pharisees and the Gentiles are praying. Christian prayer, it it wasn't being modeled. And the disciples and us in turn, we need to learn how to pray to our Father who is in heaven. The Gospel of Luke gives us this clearer picture for the disciples' need. The only record in all of Scripture where the disciples specifically ask Jesus to teach them something is in Luke chapter 11 when they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And Jesus, he goes on to show them what Christian prayer is. He models for them that Christian prayer, it's a conversation with God the Father. It's alongside the people of God as brothers and sisters concerning the kingdom of God. One commentator says it's God-centered, God-obsessed, and God-glorified. It's in contrast to the prayers that are being prayed around them that seek self-glory and meaningless rituals to a false God, which is why Jesus first says to pray then like this, which brings us to our first point, the intimacy of God. And now, most of the time when we approach someone, we interact with them based on the intimacy and the status of our relationship with them, right? My dad, he's here today, uh, over in the back, and unless you're me or my brother Phil or my sister Nina, you're not going to go up to him and call him dad. You're not going to run up to him and hug him and kiss him and say, my father, I love you, because that'd be weird. It wouldn't be right, because he's not your dad, and you're not his kid. You're not going, church, we're not going to approach someone that we don't know. You're not going to approach my dad as father because he's not your father. You're not his child. Raise your hand if you, if you think God is creator of all things. Raise your hand if you think God is king over all things. That's right. God is creator. He is king, and yet Jesus doesn't tell us to start our prayers here, does he? He doesn't say, pray then like this, our creator, our king. No, Jesus says, pray then like this, our father. Why? Why does Jesus tell us to start our prayers this way? 
Well, I think Jesus instructs us to pray to God as Father because every time we pray, church, that he wants us to remember some foundational truths about Christianity, that we are his children and we are siblings of one another. Now, unlike my word saying, don't approach my dad as father, Jesus is telling us to approach his dad as father. And the word father here, it's the Aramaic word Abba, which was the word used in Jesus' time to address one's own father. And now this would absolutely floor Jesus' listeners on the mountain. Jesus, he's the first Jewish rabbi to directly call God Father. It was a radical departure from Jewish tradition. And for this very reason, Jesus claiming that he's God and claiming that he has intimate relationship with the Holy God is the reason that many sought to kill Jesus. Because to call one Abba was to acknowledge that you had status as a son, status as a daughter. It was a term that signified a relationship that was built on trust, affection, security, and intimacy. One where you were known and one where you were loved. So when Jesus says, pray our Father, he's saying to come to God as he does. He's saying you are God's child and God is your father, approach him that way. Come to him. A child would a loving father. Uh, earlier this week, I got to have breakfast uh, at the Weber household, and Jeremy, uh, the guy, makes incredible pancakes. Um, and so, but uh, when I was there, I got to see this beautiful picture of what it looks like for a child to come to their father. Uh, Time and time again, Vera and Tomas would come up to Jeremy to to show him something and to tell him something. And instead of being dismissive, instead of being harsh, Jeremy met them each time with love and with attentiveness. His children knew that even though if they came to him and and they were disciplined, it was because he loves them. So they would come to him running up to him as a loving father. Church, do do you come to God this way? Do you approach God as a child and he your loving father who knows what you need? Do you pray this way? Do you believe that you have a God who is involved and a present father in your lives? And now, what's interesting about Jesus' instruction to pray our Father, to address his own Father is ours, is he, he doesn't tell us to address God as my Father. He doesn't say your Father, but our Father. Can you guys say our Father? In his book, Prayer, author John Onwachekwa highlights that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tends to use singular pronouns like you, him, or anyone when he's speaking to the crowd about morality. And yet, when Jesus is talking to the same crowd about prayer, he speaks with plural pronouns, our Father. I have uh, two little girls, their names are Georgia and Bennett, and 
Sometimes one of them will run over to me and sit up on my lap and say, my daddy. And now, if you can imagine, especially for those who know my kids, that the other one will run into the room screaming and shouting, pushing her sister off of my lap, going, no, my daddy. And church, in that moment, it's, 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 it's as if they forget that they're sisters. It's as if they forget that I'm their father. And we can be like our kids sometimes, right? We can forget that we're brothers and sisters who share a heavenly father. We can often let our differences divide us. We can let our otherness divide us. Now, we can at least in theory acknowledge that this person is my brother in Christ or this person is my sister in Christ, but when it comes to practice, we don't want anything to do with them. We don't even want to see them uh, at Sunday gathered and say hello to them, let alone be in a discipling relationship with them. Jesus' disciples, they had different political views and occupations and socioeconomic statuses. They had different interests and any other cultural and personal norm that you can think of. And in this group of disciples that Jesus is teaching to pray are Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Matthew, he's a tax collector for the Roman government, which is To work for the Roman government is a complete betrayal of his Jewish peers. They wanted absolutely nothing to do with him because of this. And then on the other side, you have Simon the Zealot, who was a Jewish nationalist that strongly upheld Jewish culture and tradition. And to to be frank, he wanted the Roman government to burn down. On paper, these two are enemies. They would never choose to spend time together, and yet, where do we find them? We find them at the feet of Jesus. We find them putting all aspects of their life aside except for the praise of their Messiah, their King. They laid their preferences down, their views down, their differences down, and to be blunt, church, they they laid their pettiness down. And so when Jesus, when he says, pray then like this, our Father, we're reminding ourselves of the unity we have in Christ as brothers and sisters. We're going to God, our Father, as a family for one another, with one another, so that we may remind ourselves and each other of the goodness of God that we have in Christ Jesus, that we were once far from him and now we are near to him. And this is because of our big brother, Jesus. My family, do we pray this way? Do we have hearts that ache for one another as we go to our Father? A good friend of mine, he once said to get someone to move, sometimes you need to step on their toes. Church, I love you guys. I love you, and because I love you, I'm willing to step on some toes this morning. And I need you to believe me when I say that my toes need stepped on more than anybody's in this room.
Matthew and Simon, they knew that the Jesus they had in common far outweighed the differences that sought to divide them. This Jesus far outweighed the political ideologies that we have. This Jesus far outweighs our opinions about masks and vaccines. He far outweighs who's posting or not posting on Instagram. Who's reading what book on what cultural trend. He far outweighs who is woke like me and the pride who says who is not woke like me. He far outweighs who studies theology like me and who's educated like me and who's in the same season of life in relationship status as me and those who look like me and dress like me and are cool like me and go to the same places I like to go. Church, Jesus is saying he outweighs all of these things. He's telling us, he's telling me that we're saved into a family and to pray with familial commitment that Jesus teaches us, we must lay these things down. Where do, you, where do you need to lay these things down? What's seeking to divide you from your brothers and sisters? Do you truly believe in your heart that unity in Jesus far outweighs your differences? By show of hands, how many of you in here have played a part in your own birth. No, no hands, that's great. I'd be a little concerned if any hands went up. The point is, we played no role in being born. We played no role in the family we were born into. My kids, they had absolutely nothing to do with the process of becoming sisters or daughters. In church, that is the same for us. We have absolutely nothing to do with becoming God's beloved children. To start our prayers with our Father, it constantly reminds us we're God's family, not because of us, but because of Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, because of me, you can come to the Father. Because of me, you're a son and daughter. Because of me, you have intimacy with God as Father. To pray this together, Jesus says, pray it in a way that never ceases to amaze us that we belong to the family of God. Do we pray this way? Do we have a loving Heavenly Father who's present and forgiving, and faithful, gentle, and compassionate to us. Church, we have an intimate Father, but we also have a Father who is powerful, which brings us to our second point, the power of God. We see Jesus, he teaches us to pray our Father, which shows the way God intimately relates to us as father and us, his children. It's his imminence. His imminence, which is simply his involvement in his presence with us, his presence with his creation. Jesus, he then goes on to say, our father in heaven. Our father in heaven. We have a transcendent 
Father. We have a Father who is above, who is completely other than. One who is independent of his creation. We have a God who is infinitely exalted above us, yet intimately involved with us. Right before Jesus tells his disciples to pray to their Father in heaven, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The Gentiles, the pagans, they had, they had a habit of repeating the same phrases over and over again when they prayed. And what's more concerning than just the, the mechanical repetition of their prayers was that they think they're praying to a God who will hear them. This has been the pattern of old. In 1 Kings 18, the, the people of Israel are teetering back and forth between the Lord and Baal. And the prophet Elijah, he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? And so Elijah, he challenges the prophets of Baal that they each will get a bull and cut it into pieces and lay it upon wood and set no fire to it. Elijah then says, And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. So the bet is on. The prophets of Baal, they, they take their bull and cut it into pieces. They prepare it. They put it on the wood. And from morning until noon, they cry out to their God, O oh, Baal, answer us. O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. Elijah then, I can imagine at this point, he probably has some swag as he walks up to put his bull on the wood. Uh, he cuts his bull up, he lays it on the wood, and he cries out to his God, saying, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And what happens next, the fire of the Lord falls and consumes the burnt offering. And the people, they fall on their faces saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The cultural norm's always been praying to other gods, calling upon the name of other things to save them and provide for them as if they had the power to do so. They put their hope, they put their trust in themselves and these gods that always come up empty. There is no answer. So I want to ask you guys, what in your life are you looking to as if it has the power to save? What are you looking to as if it has the power to bring you security or peace? or worth, or value, or identity. Jesus is saying there is no other God like our God. Remember the God you're praying to. Remember 
Church, you're praying to an intimate Father who knows you, who inclines his ear to you, but you're also praying to a Father who is in heaven, a Father who has power. Isaiah 66, the Lord says that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Church, who is like the Lord our God? Psalm 86 says, no pagan God is like you, O Lord. None can do what you do. And in Isaiah 57, it says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The same transcendent God who is high and lifted up, dwelling in eternity, whose name is holy. He's the same God who is an imminent father. One who walks with us. One who's present with us. One who is concerned about our hearts and calls us sons and daughters. One author puts it this this way. Who else would dare wake a king up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water? Who would dare wake a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water? And Jesus is saying that in him we can come to God like that. We have the very same access to our king as Jesus does. Come to him as a child would a loving father with an intimate relationship. Now, I know many of you have broken relationships with your earthly fathers. Many of you never knew your earthly father or you've, you've lost your earthly father. I'm sorry if that's you. I'm sorry. But, but God wants us to know that whether you have a flourishing relationship or a difficult or a non-existent relationship that we can be tempted to look at the fatherhood of God through the distorted lens of earthly fatherhood. Jesus wants us to hear that there is no comparison to our heavenly father. He wants there to be no confusion. Our earthly fathers cannot compare to our father who is in heaven because our father in heaven is all powerful. Our Father in heaven is all present. He is all knowing and eternal. This is the Father who spoke creation into existence. The Father with power to split the seas so his people could walk out of slavery. This is the Father who has power to bring the dead back to life. And yet, this powerful heavenly Father is also the Father who has compassion for us. The Father who is involved in our lives. The Father who knows the amount of hairs on our heads. Church, this Father, our Heavenly Father, He wants to constantly hear from us. He wants you to come to Him all of the time. He wants you to talk to him. He wants to hear what you're thinking. He wants to know and see where you're at 
our heavenly Father wants you to come to Him. And He also constantly wants to speak to us, church. In this Father, our Heavenly Father, He never stops telling us the sweetest thing that we could ever hear. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. We can hear, church, we can hear these words from our Heavenly Father because our big brother Jesus, he perfectly praised our Heavenly Father, which brings us to our final point, the praise of God. Now, after Jesus tells his disciples who they're praying to, our Father in heaven, the first thing he teaches them to pray is, hallowed be your name. And now the word hallowed is, I'm sure, a common word in most day-to-day conversations. I actually think I heard of, overheard a few of you saying it this morning. Um, but we need to ask, what does the word hallowed mean? Well, this word hallow, it has roots going back to the Old English word halig, which is simply holy, set apart, one of a kind. The Christian Standard Bible translation says it this way, your name be honored as holy. So to hallow something means to treat it as holy, to treat it as sacred and ultimate, to praise it, to adore it. All throughout scripture we see that God is holy in and of himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's who he is. So Jesus, he's not saying God needs you to pray for him to become holy, but rather God's name is holy, but yet it's not being treated as such. It's being defiled. My family, my wife Hannah and I, we we really love hosting people at our house and we have a pretty decent-sized yard that I really love and probably sinfully want others to love, too. Uh, but last summer, we hosted a Renaissance leader training in our yard, and I was really excited for everybody to, everybody to come and enjoy the space. And the day before the training, this just absolutely horrid, horrendous smell, I can't even begin to describe how bad the smell was, it permeated throughout our yard. And Hannah and I are thinking and praying that this smell would go away by the next day, and the training comes, and the smell is still there, and it's actually getting worse. The the smell is getting worse. And all throughout the evening, people couldn't focus. People literally felt like they were going to throw up. I'm not exaggerating. The smell was that bad. Though the smell's gone now, praise God, uh, people still legitimately talk about it to this day. The reputation of my yard was defiled. (laughs) Now, the name of God is a lot greater than my yard. Jesus, he's saying God's name, his reputation, it's been defiled. It's not being treated as holy. His name is not being treated as sacred. 
He tells us to pray, hallowed be your name, to say, pray for it to be treated as holy. Pray for it to be cherished, to be treasured above all. Pray that his name would be praised. So church, do we pray this way? Do we pray that God's name is hallowed in our friendships? Do we pray that God's name is hallowed in our workplaces with our coworkers? Do we pray that God's name is hallowed in our neighborhoods? Do we pray that God's name is hallowed in our nation? Do we pray that God's name is hallowed in this church? Remember, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his disciples to live counterculturally from those around them. And from his teaching up to this point, we can deduce that the culture was living in ways that did not hallow God's name. The norms were unrighteous anger and lust and unfaithfulness to your word and to your spouse. Retaliation and hatred of your enemies. There are people who wanted to appear righteous for show. And then there are people who prayed and worshipped false gods. God's name was not being treated as holy. I believe Jesus, he starts the six petitions of this model prayer with hallowed be your name, not only because all prayer should be about this, but because our lives should be about this. Isaiah 43 says we were created for God's glory. It's why we exist. Jesus says for our lives to revolve around this glory, to revolve around the splendor and holiness of God's name. Pastor John Piper, he says that there's a sense in which the five following petitions in this prayer serve this first petition. He says this about the importance of hallowing God's name. Nothing is more clear and unshakable to me than that the purpose of the universe is for the hallowing of God's name. His kingdom comes for that. His will be done for that. Humans have bread sustained life for that. Sins are forgiven for that. Temptation is escaped for that. The purpose of the universe is for God's name to be honored to be praised. In Romans 12, Paul says we're to live our lives dedicated to the worship of God, of God. And we even see this throughout God's creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I encourage you later today to read Psalm 148 because it gives this beautiful picture of all of creation praising God. Even in Luke 19, Jesus says, if they have to, the stones would cry out in praise. God's name's to be praised. Now, there's a difference, though, between saying God's name is holy and then actually having a heart that adores him, a heart that treasures him. In Mark 1, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. And the unclean spirit says to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, 
the Holy One of God. Here we see the unclean spirit acknowledging God is holy. He's acknowledging Jesus as God. So the kind of hallowing Jesus is talking about here isn't just an acknowledgement of his holiness. No, even the demons do that. And I wonder, are we ever like this? Do we find ourselves only acknowledging God as holy with our words? Do you just think of him as holy? Do you just perform and put on a show as if he's holy, but in your heart you are worshiping another God? Jesus is saying to pray to our powerful Father, to praise and adore him more than anything. To hallow, it's such an intense word. It's to treat something as sacred, to treat something as ultimate, to make it the most important and crucial thing in your whole life, to make it the aim of all that you are and all that you do. It's to put it above everything else. It's to live as God is king on his holy throne. If you're anything like me, you don't hallow God as king. You put other things on his rightful throne. So let me ask you, what do you need to dethrone? What are you valuing more than God? What do you find yourself praising and esteeming and adoring as the most precious and sacred thing or thought in your life? Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I wonder, where is your treasure at? For some of you, the deepest part of your heart treasures something that you don't have. You may think, if people wanted to spend more time with me, then I'd have value and worth. If I only had a significant other, then my longing would be fulfilled. If my kid's behavior was better, then others would think that I'm a good parent. If I get this degree or PhD, then I'd have status, then I'd have purpose. If I only made more money, then I'd be satisfied, then I'd have security. What is it for you? Others, you might, your treasure may be enthroning something that you do have. So much so to the point that if you lost it, you wouldn't know what to do. This is true of, of me. I've had to receive counseling because I suffer from the fear of loss. The last couple of years were so bad that I, I'd wake up in the middle of the night sobbing from a dream, unable to go back to sleep, unable to move. I'd find myself daydreaming in the car or in the middle of work with debilitating fear over me that something would happen to my wife or my kids. I have and I can hold my family as the supreme treasure in my heart. So church, what do you hold as the supreme treasure in your heart? What's the thing your heart praises the most? What do you adore more than anything? When Jesus teaches us to pray together, 
Uh, he's not contradicting himself from when he says to pray in private. He's saying that private prayer and praying together, it deepens one another. It strengthens one another. And when we pray together, it helps reorient our praise back to our holy God. It helps guard ourselves against pride and helps protect us from careless and mindless prayer, like the prayer that was happening around the disciples. It reminds us that we are brothers and sisters with a father who loves us and knows what we need before we ask him. Martin Luther, he says, by our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are him. When we pray together, we remind ourselves of God's glory, of his faithfulness, of his mercy in Christ Jesus. Now remember, Jesus, when he's teaching us to pray, hallowed be your name, it's because the name of God is being mistreated. And so Jesus, he is restoring the praise of his Father, the praise that's due to a holy God, the praise that you and I cannot give on our own. In Ephesians, Paul says, by nature, because of sin, we're children of wrath and of darkness. There are sons of disobedience. And apart from Christ, we are sons of disobedience. We are in darkness. And I know this can sound harsh, but that's the reality. And these are the words of Jesus, not me. We're far from God, and there's nothing we can do on our own to change this. We went from people who were created for God's glory to constantly praise Him, to constantly have access to Him as our Father, but we turned away from His glory. Instead of worshiping the Creator, we now worship the created. Throughout today's service, even I'm sure within the last 30 seconds, I'd bet that our hearts were preoccupied with the praise of something other than God. So how? How do we get back to the way that God created us to be? The way that God created us to hallow his name, to have constant access to him as our loving father. Well, it's through God's created son, Adam, that we lost our status as God's sons and daughters. But it's through the second Adam, Christ. It's through this Adam that our identity and status would be restored. Like Adam, Jesus, he too was tempted by the devil in the exact same way to disobey God and seek great things for himself. But unlike Adam, Jesus refused to worship anything but God. He refused to praise anything but his heavenly Father, Jesus, he responded to Satan's temptation saying, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, where Adam fails, where we fail, Jesus, church, he remains faithful. When our hearts and our affections are broken with sin, Jesus, he remains devoted with wholehearted praise of our God. When we disobey, Jesus perfectly obeys even to the point of death on a cross. 
Those who have gone through the adoption process, they know that once the process is final, there's a legal transfer that takes place. Pastor and author Tim Keller, he says that when one is adopted, there isn't an immediate change in nature or behavior, but there is an essential change to your status. The father legally adopts the child, and he says, you're here whether you misbehave or not. I promise to regard you with everything as you were my natural child. I'm committed to you as you are my own son. Church, we were sons of disobedience, and yet because of Jesus, the true and better son, the true and better brother, God looks at us as if we've obeyed and praised him perfectly. The father turned his face away from the one true son so he'd never have to turn his face away from us, his sons and his daughters. In John 17, we find Jesus praying to the Father. We have a Savior who prays for us. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The love that God loves his Son, Jesus, with is now the same love he loves us with. The way the Father regards Jesus is now the same way he regards us as his sons and daughters whom he's well pleased with. Paul says this in Galatians, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit that lived inside Jesus with his unwavering and perfect praise of our Heavenly Father, is the same Spirit now that lives in us. So we can pray to our Heavenly Father. We can come to him with full access as his children, knowing that he will never leave and he will never forsake us. At the beginning of Jesus' sermon, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Church, to pray our Father is to be poor in spirit. It's to be poor in spirit because it's to remember that we have been adopted by God, not because of our love for him, but because of his love for us. What a father we have. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Our heavenly father, church, knows what we need before we even ask. And our deepest need has already been met in Christ Jesus. What response then can we have other than to hallow his name? Other than to praise and adore our holy 
God. Oh, Father, would we be a church that lives this way? Would we be a church that prays this way? 